Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to worship you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would help us to concentrate on the word this morning and and would teach us the meaning of it in application, especially for our own lives as members of the body of Christ. Father, this morning we want to especially thank you once again for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his death and resurrection on our behalf. And we thank you also for the word of God that you've given us in right and written form. And we ask again this morning, Father, for the for the people in our congregation that are unable to be here this morning. We pray for their safety if they're traveling, their health if they're sick. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, as we begin this morning, I want to remind you of a couple of schedule notes. Okay, the first one is next Sunday is the first Sunday of February, and we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of service. The second reminder is the following Sunday, we will not be having service. So it's Lord's Supper next Sunday, no service the Sunday after, February 12th. Any questions? Ask my wife. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) One other thing. um, uh, hold on a second. It's in the wrong order, but that's okay. Um, we uh, encourage you to give us your prayer requests. And um, this morning, I just wanted to show you um, that we have uh, a button, I guess for lack of a better word, on our homepage. And you click that, and right then you can enter your prayer request in there. So we encourage people to do that. We like to be know what to pray for. We do hear about things other ways, but... Um, it's very efficient. You know, on Thursdays, I try to go there in the afternoon before Bible study and then prayer service on Thursday evening. Um, so written form is best. And if you could remember to enter it on the website, uh, I'd much appreciate that. All righty, let's begin. Um, uh, oh, wait a minute. I had this out of order. We're going to sing a song. I sometimes wonder whether the people that are on Skype actually stand when we sing or not. You don't have to. Just wondering. It'd be nice. Think about it. All righty. Welcome again this morning. As usual, the title of the message today comes from our passage in John chapter 9. And it is, Behold, your king is coming. Behold, your king is coming. Please turn to the Gospel of John now in chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 9 this morning. John chapter 12, verse 9 to 19. And I will read the passage. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he, Jesus, was there. Now in context, remember that we just finished last week seeing that there was a a supper that was... uh, put together for Jesus when he came back to Bethany. That was where Mary anointed his feet with, with oil and then you know cleansed it with her hair. And so this large crowd came to see what well, we'll see in a minute. They came to see not only Jesus, but also Lazarus. Okay, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he, Jesus, was there at the supper. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also now, because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, that's Passover, okay, that's that feast, Passover, large crowd, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so now Jesus has left Bethany, he's headed to Jerusalem, not far away, remember, a couple of miles. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees, and they went out to meet him, and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus Finding a young donkey sat on it, as it is written, Scripture, Old Testament, Zechariah. Fear not, O daughter of Zion, because your king is coming. And he's, oops, excuse me for a second. Sorry about that. 
Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written in the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things the disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. They recalled after the glorification of Jesus that he did ride into Jerusalem on a young donkey and in that way fulfilled the scripture of Zechariah 9.9. They didn't realize that that day. It was only after Jesus was glorified. They remembered these things were written in Zechariah and that they, the large crowd, had done these things to him. Verse 17. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. That's a smaller crowd, a crowd nonetheless. But this is the people. These are the people who had gathered in Bethany to mourn Lazarus along with Mary and Martha. They were the ones who actually accompanied Jesus to Lazarus's tomb and saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. Okay, they were they they couldn't stop telling everybody who this Jesus was. Who had, who, had, who had performed this amazing sign miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. 18, for this reason also, the people, this is the large crowd now, went and met him on the road to Jerusalem because they had heard that he had performed this sign. I want you to notice, we'll come back to this, that the reason they went out to meet him wasn't necessarily that they believed he was the Messiah, but rather that this was the miracle worker. We've seen this again and again in the Gospel of John. They were excited about seeing the miracle worker. Less clear that they knew who he was or believed who he was because they heard that he had performed the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. By the way, when they said the world, they meant the the pilgrims, Remember, this is Passover. There were three feasts in the Jewish year where pilgrims would come from all over. By pilgrims, I just mean Jews who were traveling, in some cases, long distances to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. That's what they meant when they said the world. Okay, and people came from far away. Um, As a matter of fact, if you go in 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 the book of Acts, chapter two, when Peter gives his speech after Jesus is glorified and the spirit comes down upon the disciples, it says that they were, it describes all the nations that, uh, that the people had come to, in that case for the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days later. In any event, verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. This here again, just like we saw earlier with Caiaphas, the Pharisees that day said far more than they understood. Because on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel would go out to the whole world and people in every country would believe in Jesus Christ. Our text today centers on an account, John's version, if I could put it that way, of Jesus, what we now call his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay, And it is triumphal. We'll see more of this. It was, he received a royal welcome that day. It was a momentous event, and it's one of the few that are found in all four Gospels. Matthew records this event, Mark does, Luke does, and of course John does. And this really is a transition from Jesus' ministry in terms of preaching and, and performing his miracles. Okay, Then we have this transition right here where he now is going to come into Jerusalem, and now we're going to see that on the basis of Lazarus being raised from the dead, a lot of things are set in motion. And so we're going to see um, in just a little while that this is going to lead to to him being crucified. Um, So that's a shift. That's a change in John. He would express it from his earthly ministry to his ultimate heavenly glorification. And that's that's what was going to be set in motion. But this event while it's in all four Gospels, is particularly important for John's Gospel. Particularly important. That's because the main purpose of John's Gospel was to present evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that he's the Son of God. 
early on, we went to that passage in John 20, verses 30 to 31, if you recall that, which was where John, at the end of his gospel, says, this is why I've written these things. And he was referring primarily to the sign miracles, but also to the words that Jesus spoke. These things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the Son of God. And the subject of the Messiah, the Christ, again, is central now to the mission and purpose of the whole Gospel of John. And we've seen as we've traveled through the Gospel, we're here in chapter 12 now, but we've seen all along that the Gospel of John refers over and over again to the Messiah, the Christ, in many, many places. Um, I'll just give you a, a handful of those. I, uh, I pulled these notes back. See, we back about a year and a couple of months ago, we actually took a time out from the verse by verse study in the Gospel of John. And we did a series on the Messiah, particularly in the Old Testament. But John records the, the fact that the, that the Messiah was on the minds of people at that time, as well as John giving his commentaries, he often did at various points in this gospel. We saw that John the Baptist right away in chapter three had to emphasize that he was not the Messiah. We saw in chapter four that Jesus told the Samaritan woman that he was, that he, Jesus, was the promised Messiah. During the Feast of Dedication in chapter 7, he told the Jews in the temple, I'm sorry, in chapter 10, he told the Jews in the temple the same thing, that he was the Messiah. Along the way, most of the apostles came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, some of them as soon as chapter 1 when they first met him. And then finally, Jesus, John records that many, many, many ordinary Jews believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And we're going to see a great example of this this morning. Now, the ordinary people did, but it's important to understand that the leadership of Israel at that time totally rejected him. This is important for many, many things. One, it's the direct explanation for why, how it was that they'll let the father predestined Jesus to go to the cross. In addition, though, and we're going to see this in just a minute, the prophets in the Old Testament talked about the fact that Jesus would come and that he would be crucified. And then he would be he would then come back again. So we have we see this Messiah presented in two totally different ways. There's if I could call it that the servant. All right. The humble Jesus king which was foreign, very foreign to the understanding of the people in his day, by the way. And then there would be the triumphant king who would come back. And then he would then lead um, the angel armies to destroy all the enemies and, and, and rescue Jerusalem. But again, the Gospel of John refers to the Messiah, the Christ, in many places. But not only that, and this is where we really saw in some detail back about a year and a couple of months ago, in October through December of 2021. Because the Old Testament also, especially actually, spoke of the Messiah, the one who was yet to come. Recall that King David was the greatest Old Testament king of Israel, without a doubt. And yet the Lord, through the prophet, promised David that one of his descendants would be a far, far greater king than even David was. And the Lord promised that, David, that, that, that King David's throne would be established forever. The book of Isaiah says the same thing, that this, that this one who will come will rule all the nations and his, his reign will be forever. At that time, the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, will rule over the kings of the earth. Isaiah emphasized this. The other prophets did, Psalm 2, Daniel. They all represent the fact that this Messiah would come and, and when he comes, he would rule over the kings of the earth. That's the focus in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the promise to David that he would have a descendant who would be greater than he was and rule on his throne forever. Well, in the New Testament, of course, we see that we, what we're going to see this morning is that um, the prophets actually also made a separation. All right. Well, actually, they talked about in two ways what would happen when the Messiah comes. And we're going to see that the New Testament makes a separation. We'll see that this morning. 
So again, the Lord promised that David's throne would be established forever and that one of his descendants would rule on that throne forever. Well, one of the greatest prophecies of the old in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And this time I would like you to turn to the book of Zechariah to see this one of his greatest prophecies of the, of the coming Messiah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9. <clears throat> Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let me stop right now because John records this first verse, Zechariah 9.9, talking about the king coming, bringing salvation, but humble and mounted on a donkey. We're going to see what that what that symbolized as well this morning. So then we have verse 10. Now in Zechariah's prophecy, it, it looks as if it is one event, right? That he comes, he comes humbly, but then, verse 10, the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off and he, the king, will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. And of course, that is the Davidic covenant being fulfilled. That is the promise to David being fulfilled. At that time, Jesus would come, will come. It's in it's in the book of Revelation, among other places, that Jesus would come back. Jesus himself said so in the Gospel of John. At that time, he will destroy all the enemies. Okay, they cut off the chariot from Ephraim, removed the horse. The horse was a symbol of war, okay? And not only a symbol of war, but one of the greatest weapons of war at that time was, was, was cavalry on horses. And the bow of water will be cut, war will be cut off, and his, he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion, he will rule, will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 10 was the thing that was on the minds of the people of Israel when Jesus came. That's who they expected their Messiah to do, to perform. He would be a great military hero, that he would bring deliverance to the nation, and that he would establish a worldwide kingdom. They didn't think so much of verse 9, you see. And we're going to see this morning that it's really important to note that it wasn't the people who spoke Zechariah 9.9. We'll see. They, what they did speak from the Old Testament, but it wasn't this passage. See, John is the one. Now, he was, of course, one of the apostles who witnessed this event. Okay, And even he wouldn't understand the implications of why Jesus was riding in on a donkey until much later. Okay, But by the time he writes the Gospel of John, he has, of course, been enlightened by the Spirit as to the significance of that event. And then he, now he realizes that Zechariah 9.9 was fulfilled completely that day. So that was John's commentary many years later. Because again, at that time, um, the Jews, of course, were under the bondage of Roman Empire rule, and they wanted to break out of that, most of them. And that's why they, they wanted a king who would be a military hero, like verse 10. But John only quotes verse 9 in the Gospel of John chapter 12. Now, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, let's go, let's go to, um, let's go, actually, did I tell you to go to Zechariah? Okay, good. So now, if we think back to what we read this morning, Jesus will enter Jerusalem to great acclaim by the common people, by the way. Now, again, they were mostly excited because of the miracle he performed, both the people who saw it, but, but even all the people that they told. We're going to see in just a minute how big this crowd might have been that came to welcome him in Jerusalem. You know, when you if you ever watched a movie about Jesus, um, like Jesus of Nazareth or so, you know, there's a crowd. But maybe they, 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 they depict maybe 200, 300 people. Believe me, 
It was a much bigger crowd than that. In any event, Jesus enters Jerusalem to the acclaim of the everyday Jewish people, not the leaders. I mean, we've seen ample evidence that the leaders totally rejected Jesus. We saw it first when they all gathered together, the chief priests and the Pharisees, to make a, make a decision to have him put to death. In our passage today in John, we see how the Pharisees were freaking out, okay, that the whole world was going to this guy. So the, the leadership of Israel reject Jesus. Many of the common people rejoiced in him. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem to the acclaim of the everyday Jewish people, this is important too. Not only do they welcome him as a king, he presents himself as the promised king. This is really important because there was, a, as it were, a bona fide offer to the Jewish people of Jesus as their king. But, of course, they rejected that. The prophets are clear about that. Jesus himself is clear about that. But the, but the point here, we're going to see this this morning, is he did present himself as the promised king, that greatest descendant of David. In so doing, he directly and completely fulfills the prophecy in Zechariah 9. 9. Let's go now to our text again. Go to John chapter 12, verse 9. And we'll walk through this passage together. John 12, starting in verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. See, that was the big event. That was what they had heard about. That's what excited them. They wanted to see that here's this Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. And here's the miracle worker sitting at the same table as he was. It was quite a spectacle as far as they were concerned. So those are the, that's the large crowd. That's the pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem. They had come early so that they would be purified. Remember the purification rites so that they would be eligible to celebrate the feast. They came to Bethany to see that Jesus was there and Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. But, verse 10, chief priests leadership. Now, now before, remember, Caiaphas and the group had decided they were going to put Jesus to death. And Caiaphas said, it is better that one man die than all the people perish. Remember that? Well, but but as soon as they realized that Lazarus, too, was riling up the crowd, they figured we got to kill him, too. The chief, the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, the miracle the one who was raised from the dead, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This is going to be a temporary thing. All right. It's ne- John never, never, we're never sure in this case that these people believed in him as the Messiah and the son of God. Rather, they believed that this could be the, the, the great king who could rescue us from the Romans and, and, and also usher in the kingdom that the Old Testament prophets talked about. So, again, I think it's pretty clear here that in John's account, now remember, John's mission in his gospel is to present Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. And and John is the only one, unlike the what we're seeing this morning, that Jesus coming into Jerusalem, where all four gospels record that, only John records the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that's really significant because that explains things that the other Gospels leave unexplained. I mean, here's this great crowd. Where did it come from? We don't know. Here's the, 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 the Pharisees and the chief priests totally committed to putting him to death. How did that come about? Okay. And it's all based on the, the Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus. Because this, remember, this is the greatest sign miracle in the Gospel of John. And it directly results in having these enthusiastic crowds welcome Jesus as their king and accompany him to Jerusalem. That in turn, the great crowd now. Now, remember, until this point, um, there were definitely people who believed in him. We saw back in chapter six of the Gospel of John how when Jesus fed the 5,000, how many of them wanted to make him king at that time. And he he kind of withdrew from them so they wouldn't do that. Okay. But this time, the crowds are much bigger, even than the 5,000. And so this, of course, turns the chief priests and the Pharisees. They're in a full panic mode. 
They're desperate now. They realize that this thing is getting out of hand and quickly. And the Passover meal is about to be celebrated. In other words, the the raising of Lazarus explains why the massive crowd greeted him. It also explains the ensuing behavior of the Sanhedrin. You see, they have, they have to modify their plan because the crowds were so great. Okay. What that meant, now they had already decided earlier to put Jesus to death. That was clear. And they never rescinded that, of course. And if anything, they, they doubled down on that commitment they had made. So they already decided to put him to death. But now the huge crowds publicly hailing Jesus, now defying the warnings and the rulings of the Sanhedrin. Remember, before they were afraid of that. They said, well, we don't want to even mention that he's the Messiah because the leadership will kick us out of the synagogues if we do that. They won't let us even into the temple. Now they didn't care. See, see the, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead flipped the switch, as it were. They were now publicly hailing Jesus, defying the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the Pharisees. So these These chief priests and Pharisees that made up the Sanhedrin, they had to adjust the plan. See, now they would need to carry out their plot in secret. They would have to operate in the shadows because the crowd had turned. They realized that if they did anything publicly, that they they could just fire up the resistance even more. So they didn't do that. That explains why they met Judas secretly, right? And they wanted to capture Jesus at night. And they wanted to capture him away from the crowds because these crowds were really worked up about who this Jesus might be. All right, let's continue now in verse 12, John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, a large crowd who had come to the Passover feast. Notice it was the crowd who came to the feast. Right. We're going to see in just a minute just how big that crowd was. On the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the Passover feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, he was on his way. He was on the road. He's actually actually on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, where he made a stopover in Bethany. Now he's coming in to the city of Jerusalem. When they heard that, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. They welcomed him as the king of Israel. Jesus, verse 14, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Zechariah 9, 9, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things, the things here refer to Jesus coming into Jerusalem, to the acclaim of the people, being welcomed as the king of Israel in fulfillment of the prophecy of, John, of Zechariah 9.9. These things the disciples did not understand at the first. They didn't understand why he was sitting on a young donkey. They didn't recognize that he was fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. But when Jesus was glorified, now what does that mean? It means that after he died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and seated at the right hand of the Father in the the place of ultimate glory, then something happens. In John chapter 7, we see where Jesus said, after I'm glorified, the Father will send the Spirit. And it was the Holy Spirit that made all the difference in allowing them to understand and, and have this scripture brought back to their memory. They remembered that these things were written of him and that they, the crowd now, had done these things to him. What's, what had they done? They had welcomed him. They had sung the Hosanna. We'll see where that came from in just a minute. It's in a psalm of the Old Testament. They even they had palm branches. We'll see that that was significant. They, brought, they came to meet him. And the other um, gospel writers also talk about them taking off their coats and laying them into the ground. So as it were, there was this great, it wasn't red, but this carpet of coats and palm branches that he would walk through. The Valley Celebratory, as a matter of fact, it was a royal welcome. They were welcoming him as the king, and he is presenting himself as the king, and he's doing that by sitting on that donkey, okay? They didn't understand it at the time, but afterwards they understood that he had fulfilled Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
Well, in verse 12, when it says the next day, now we have five days before the Passover. See, that great supper that Jesus had with Lazarus, where Mary anointed his feet with oil, with expensive perfume, that was six days before the Passover. Well, the next day is five days before the Passover. Now, we see the large crowd in verse 12. Well, that large crowd, again, consisted of Jewish pilgrims who had arrived early to purify themselves. Now, these pilgrims would have come from Galilee, for sure. As a matter of fact, the other gospel writers talk of these people from Galilee accompanying Jesus down from Galilee to Jerusalem. That was, that was some of them. But they also came from all the nations throughout the Roman Empire, these, these Jewish pilgrims. See, it was commanded in the Torah that there would be three feasts every year that, that Jewish males who were healthy and able to make the trip would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. That's the people. That's the large crowd that John refers to in verse 12. I got to tell you one thing, a, a fact. There's a Jewish historian that was alive in the first century, and he recorded a lot of things that were that he thought were significant in a historical way about what had happened to the Jewish people. Well, he estimated the crowd. It was a different year. It was somewhere in the mid-60s A.D., probably 67, 68 A.D. But for that Passover feast, he estimated that 2.7 million Jews attended that Passover feast. Let me say that number again. 2.7 million Jews. Now, they didn't all come out, but a lot of them did. So So it wasn't just a large crowd. It was a huge crowd. Okay. Unbelievably huge. Why? Why did they come? Well, again, they had heard the report. Jesus has, had raised this Lazarus from the dead. A lot of them had gone to Bethany to see Lazarus. And now that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, you could feel the excitement. It was palpable. They were now ready on the, on the basis of his miracle, his sign miracle, to welcome him as their king. After all, a man who could raise the dead could certainly also assemble an army to do battle with the Romans and prevail. I mean, I mean, I mean, you could they could they were probably saying, you know, even if the Roman Empire wipes out a thousand of these guys, Jesus can just bring them back. Right. So they said, this is our moment. Jesus is the king. He can do battle with the Romans and prevail. And so they gave him a royal welcome. They welcomed him as their king. They had palm branches. Well, by this time in in Jewish history, by the way, the palm branch had become a symbol of victory, of victory. See, see, they, they were excited again because they anticipated a great military victory over the Romans. Okay, everything pointed to that. Okay, so so they had the palm branches. Now, now what's the first word that they say? Now, see, here, here's the thing. In verse 13, okay, when they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him on the road to Jerusalem, and they shouted, and the, the first thing they said was what? Verse 13. Hosanna, right. What does that mean? Well, Hosanna, the word Hosanna, okay, it was it was actually sung during the entry of the pilgrims, not only into Jerusalem, but then into the temple. Okay, and it was sung every time they came. And it was a greeting. They greeted each other. But there was an important part of that because it was also extending a wish, a hope that the blessings of salvation would finally come. Now, again, they understood that primarily as deliverance. Okay, we think now we understand the full meaning of what happened at the cross. Well, they had no idea about that, okay? But they extended greetings that included and this salvation. See, the thing about this event was that most of the people who participated in it didn't understand the significance of what they were doing, okay? The disciples, even the closest ones, didn't know, why is Jesus sitting on a donkey? The crowd were welcoming him as a conquering hero. But none of that you know, the, that those things, again, they did it, they sang it, they saw it, but they didn't understand. As a matter of fact, the only people who understood it were Jesus and his Heavenly Father. 
And that's also significant. We'll see why that is in a minute. So the palm branch, symbol of victory, <laughs> word Hosanna. Hosanna was a greeting. Okay, they greeted each other. Okay, as on their way to the temple, it included a wish for the blessings of salvation. Each of the four gospel accounts record these shouts of acclamation. And we're going to see exactly what they recorded. Okay, there's no doubt, no doubt at all that the Jewish people were welcoming Jesus as their king. In fact, they were they were that they were doing. Okay, was actually reciting and singing the ending of what's called the halal. Okay, it's not important what it's called, but this is the song that the worshippers sang as they processed to the temple during the great Jewish feasts. They were singing it that day. It's taken from Psalm one eighteen. I'd like you to turn there now. Psalm chapter one eighteen, verse starting in verse nineteen. The portion of this song that they sang when Jesus came was is in is we're going to see is in verse 26. Okay, we're starting though in verse 19 because this is a very very significant psalm when it comes to the King coming. The reason is is that this is a what we call a messianic psalm. There are a lot. There are quite a few, at least ten or twelve. Psalms that directly talks about the Messiah. This is one of them. Remember now, the pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem. They're entering the gates of the city, and they're they're excited to celebrate the feast, the Passover feast in this case. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. That's why they had to purify themselves. They had to be in the status of righteous, according to the law, okay, in order for them to even enter the city at the time of the Passover. Now, we read it now in light of how we've been enlightened by the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. And, of course, we see much more here. See, we see the gates of righteousness in terms of the righteousness that was credited to us when we believe in Jesus Christ. That's what we give thanks for. Back then, they were given thanks for another year, another another um, opportunity to gather together to celebrate one of the Jewish feasts. Verse 21, I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me. And notice the end of verse 21, you have become my salvation. So again, this song was, was singing about the hope for salvation, and, and they sang it three times a year. Now, look at verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This psalm is quoted several times in the New Testament. And every time it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time the builders are the leaders of Israel who rejected him. As a matter of fact, the rejection included him going to the cross. But it has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the chief cornerstone for the church. Okay, he's also the one who's going to come back and establish the kingdom. So in other words, this psalm says far more than the pilgrims would have understood either. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 25, oh, Lord, do save. We beseech you. Oh, Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. In other words, salvation was on their minds. And again, I want to repeat what they were, what they saw it was in terms of delivering Israel, Jerusalem in particular, from, from the Gentile domination. And they saw the prosperity as that promise in the Old Testament when the earthly kingdom would come. Do send prosperity, verse 26. This should sound familiar based on the gospel pastors this morning. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Well, this psalm is pregnant with meaning about the coming Messiah. The stone that the builders rejected ultimately points to the death of Christ on the cross. 
And again, for us, that should pop right out when we see the combination of salvation hoped for and the death of Christ on the cross. Again, none of the disciples realized it that day, but we do. Well, so so here we have, again, what's called a halal. It's actually sung from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. So all the way along the procession, they're singing and reciting this. When they get right to the temple, this is what they're singing, Okay. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The tremendous crowd, however, that welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem, they changed this. In fact, they added something to this halal, verse 26 of Psalm 118, to the point where, see, see, at the time, remember, they, they, in, ancient, in, in Jewish history, during the feasts, they would sing it to one another, okay, the one who came in the name of the Lord was all of them, right? The pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem in the name of the Lord. Well, that day, they transformed that idea. You see, now the one who comes in the name of the Lord no longer refers to those pilgrims. Rather, it's been transformed to mean the king who brings salvation. The king who brings salvation. But only Jesus and the father that day understood the kind of kingship that Jesus was going to accept. Only the Father and Jesus understood that the salvation meant his death on the cross and his resurrection. But in all four Gospels, we see that this acclamation recorded. What I'd like to do now is just simply show you the verse in each of the four Gospels where they sing this Hosanna, where they sing this greeting that's been transformed. Notice how it's been transformed. Look, on the, on, this will be on the slides, okay? But it also tells you where in each gospel this passage is found. Well, Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, is Matthew's record of the same event of Jesus' triumphant procession into Jerusalem. But notice how he puts the Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. No longer, it's not a greeting any longer for, for, for to the pilgrims themselves, greeting one another. Now it's welcoming the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. By the way, we're going to see that each of the Gospels records something a little bit different on the same idea. Now, of course, the critics want to say, well, you know, this can't be inspired and all that. No, what it meant was that as they were singing this, different people in the crowd were singing different things, all worshiping this king or not greeting this king. They're not worshiping, greeting this king. Well, Matthew records that that one of the things that they sang was Hosanna to the son of David. That's a direct reference to the Messiah. That's the fulfillment of the of the promise, the covenant to David. Mark 11, okay, verses 9 and 10 is another passage. See, they, verse 9 says those who were out in front and those who followed the crowd were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they added something. Notice what they what they added. I already have it. Blessed is what? The coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Again, they're, they're transferring this blessing, this greeting from one another to the king and the kingdom. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Luke also records this Hosanna, this greeting, and it's in Luke 19. I'm going to read verses 37 to 38, but pay attention to what's on the slide. As soon as Jesus was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. What were they praising God for? Miracles they had seen. That's really consistent with John. That's what they were excited about. That's what they were celebrating. That's how they anticipated that the king is coming. The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. What were they shouting? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were given Jesus a royal welcome. That's important. They didn't know why. They didn't realize the kind of kingship that Jesus would accept that day. They were excited about the miracles. Okay, and that's why they transformed the song that they sang during every time they came to the one of the three major feasts, but now 
they'd used it to refer to this Jesus, and they called him the king. Okay, back in John, you've never left John 12, 13, unless you're really ambitious and you've been following me and the pastors, which is great. But John John 12, verse 13, okay, notice how he puts it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. There can be no doubt. This was a royal welcome. This crowd of ordinary pilgrims was welcoming Jesus as their king, as their king. Not only that, Jesus accepted that welcome. He accepted. In other words, he presented himself as the promised king. Now, now what he understood that king to be is, is totally different than the crowd. As a matter of fact, in just a few chapters, he's going to be before Pilate, and the Pilate's going to ask him, are you a king then? And he would say, I am. But then he would say, my kingdom is not of this world, right? Totally different from the, from the anticipation of the people. Nevertheless, he accepted the welcome, and he presents himself as the promised king. But the way he did it is remarkable. It's so much so that none of the disciples understood it until after Jesus had been glorified and the Spirit guided them into the truth. Jesus is going to be in the upper room in chapters 13 through 17. He's going to say, I'm going to say to the, to the close disciples, the 12, the 11 actually, because Judas had just already left to betray him. But he would say, listen, after I go to heaven... The Spirit's going to come, and he's going to guide you into all the truth. He's going to bring to your remembrance the things I said and explain the meaning. But you see, that day, on on this joyful, victorious procession into Jerusalem, something profound happened that escaped the notice of everyone except Jesus and his Father. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that his Father, that day, offered him the real kingship. Okay, because after all, the crowd gave him the wrong one. I mean, they they thought Zechariah nine, nine and ten. Right. Even they even thought about it. They were thinking about a victorious military king. But his father was the only one who actually offered him a bona fide kingship that day, because after all, they were the, the common people may have welcomed him that day on the basis of his miracles. But they would soon fade when they realized that the chief priests and the Pharisees we're going to have arrested, have arrested him. There was nobody singing and rejoicing anymore at that time. So this was this was based on emotion, on excitement, on a miracle, right? Not really understanding truly that Jesus was the king that was promised. Well, the father offered him the actual kingship that day. Jesus accepted this kingship that the father offered him. When he was presenting himself as the king of Israel, he was presenting himself as the king that the father had ordained him to be. Okay, based on Zechariah 9.9, he would be seated on a donkey. He would come in humility. He would come in peace. He would not come as a great military leader. But not only that, this kingship came with a cup that Jesus had to drink. That's how he put it. I have a cup that I need to drink. What is he talking about? His passion, his suffering, his death on the cross. Because this king, first of all, would be the good shepherd and he would lay down his life for the sheep. That's actually what he illustrated by sitting on that donkey that day. Because you see, he, when he rode into Jerusalem on a cult, the cult was a sign of humility, sign of gentleness, really the very opposite of, of the characteristics that they were hoping for in a king. And, uh, it was the opposite of that. It was humility. It was gentleness. It was serving. The, the cult was the, was the way in which the common people, if they even had an animal that could transport them anywhere, a lot of them walked. But the common people would sit on a cult or a donkey. This king would first become a servant. A servant. As he was called by, the, by John, John the Baptist, he would be the Lamb of God first, the Lamb of God, not the Lion, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the salvation that he came. You see, that's why it was only the Father who understood this kingship. When they were singing about salvation, they had no idea that he was going to die for them. The cross had to come before the crown. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, not a war horse. 
Again, the colt was a sign of humility and gentleness. By the way, the other gospel writers get into this um, it, this this situation of the cult of the donkey in a lot more detail than John. John simply mentions the fact the cult is there. He gets on it. In fact, Jesus was the one who had arranged for the cult to be there that day. He is the one who had sent his disciples, a couple of them, into Bethany, actually. And and he said, listen, you will find a cult there. If anyone asks you what you're doing, just tell him that the master has need of it. So he had set it all up. That's important, too, because it shows that he had carefully, consciously planned this, this what coming in on a cult, because he, that would tell everybody, no, tell nobody that day except the father, only in retrospect, that he was the king of Zechariah 9.9. Not the king of Zechariah 9.10. So Jesus arranged for the cult to be there that day. It signified that he was presenting himself to Israel as the Messiah who would soon die for them and for the whole world. In other words, he came in the name of the Lord, his father. He fulfilled the word of God. And one more time, I'm going to read Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Jerusalem, shout in triumph. O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to just come to you at the end this morning and want to thank you that you have given us your son. Father, help us to understand that while the event in question in the Gospel of John was 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 uh, seemed to be just offering the king, offering Jesus as himself as the King of Israel, in in reality it meant far far more. Thanks for opening up our eyes this morning to this. Thank you, Father, that that Jesus on the colt is the symbol, the sign that he was coming as a servant first, the suffering servant of Isaiah fifty three, and that that came before the crown which he would wear in the future okay but but his death really was for all the world and once he died and was raised from the dead and he, he was the gospel went out the whole world really did come to him in the sense that there would be believers in every country gentile as well as jew so we're here today with that legacy allowing us to have heard the same gospel we want to thank you for that father and ask today that we would have in our hearts a better understanding of who Jesus is, what the Messiahship was really all about, based on this passage this morning. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.